I think we need to create space and create housing for people so that they feel welcome and fully part of society when they arrive so that they have a dignity in where they live. And I think that will make them want to give more back to society as a result, right? Like feeling like I'm not other, like I'm part of the community. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. This is the fifth and final installment of our Halal Housing Lab series, where we've been exploring the complexity of affordable housing development alongside new and innovative solutions to affordably house multi-generational Muslim families in Edmonton, Alberta. The Halal Housing Lab is a collaborative project between our partners at Islamic Family, or IFSA, Another Way, SAS Architecture, Ask for a Better World, and our team at Intelligent Futures. It's all funded by the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Throughout the first four episodes of this series, we've talked with many of our lab partners who are experts in navigating the systems and scales of affordable housing development. From affordable housing architects to sustainability and resilience experts, community economic development consultants, and the team at Islamic Family, we've begun to understand the system that halal housing exists within. One expert voice we know has been absent from the conversation so far is the voice of Muslims with lived experience in affordable housing. Without including individuals with lived experience in the design process, it creates an unbalanced approach to ending Canada's affordable housing crisis. This is true of any social issue. The people who are living the issue usually have the best understanding about what the problem is and what needs to be done to address it. In today's episode, we dive into a great conversation co-produced by our lab partner Hussein Khan of Islamic Family in conversation with Hawaida Hassan to better understand the lived experience of affordable housing in the Muslim community. Yeah, so some of the things you remember are kind of smells and colors, I think. You know, as a kid, those are kind of like the feelings also that you take away from the space are the other thing I remember. So in terms of smells and colors, it was a lot of gray and brown, not really joyful colors. Like I remember my parents, so our backyard, if you want to call it that, it was like a concrete kind of area. And it was like these patio stones. So my parents had taken out some of the patio stones to plant some, you know, Egyptian herbs and things that they remembered, some flowers. So that was nice. But otherwise, it was very brown and gray. It always kind of smelled funny. Like I remember smelling things that didn't smell great, like coming up the stairs and things like that. You could tell it was urine probably. <laughs> like it, it wasn't great. Like in hindsight now, when I think back on the smells, I'm like, I probably thought it was cigarettes, but I think it was probably marijuana and stuff like that. Like it wasn't the most well-kept place. And again, not the most joyful or kind of beautiful place. Hi, this is Hussein. I'm a podcast producer from Islamic Family. Over the past few episodes, you've heard from members of our team and other folks talk about the opportunities and challenges of culturally informed affordable housing through the Halal Housing Lab. But today we'll be doing something a little different and telling you about the lived experiences of someone who grew up in affordable housing and the lasting impact that's had on her. Both my parents always made it feel like a home and quite warm and it was just home, but you don't know as a kid like what you don't know. And uh, my earliest memories are my parents not really feeling comfortable with us going to the playground. So we played a lot in our house and we would play in that backyard area where the concrete kind of slabs were and it was fine, but you don't know what you don't know, like I say, until you get older and then you realize, yeah, it would have been nicer to have some green space to go play in and for somewhere for my parents to feel safe for us to let us go. This is Hawaida Hassan. 
She's a board member for Islamic Family. By training, Huayda is an engineer, and she's been working in urban and transport planning for years. And a big part of our journey there, of how she thinks about equitable and accessible cityscapes, is through her own experiences of living in affordable housing with her family until she was in grade four. While she was born in Canada, Huayda's parents came from Egypt. To start us off, Huayda is going to give us a tour of the complex, from the outside to coming inside the unit where her family lived. Well, let me start you down in the lobby area, maybe. It was kind of interesting, this complex, because it was kind of like these two-story apartments within kind of town homey sort of complex. And so you'd start, I just remember the parking garage being huge, like this parking garage with these huge columns. And you'd come through these kind of, I can't remember if they were glass doors or metal doors. Those didn't feel so great, like felt a bit institutional as well. And then you'd come up these stairs and that's where you'd smell the not so great smells sometimes. And we were on the second floor. So we'd take the stairs up. If we had groceries, then we'd have to make a few trips. And so I remember coming up the stairs and then there's a hallway and along that hallway, I would say about five to eight units. Ours was like second on the left and... Yeah, you open up the door and the first thing you see is our living room. And to the right is a set of stairs that went up to the two bedrooms. Um, And to the left was the kitchen. And if you went straight through the living room, just walked right through it, that's where the door to that um, backyard kind of area was. The kitchen, which he tells me was pretty tiny, was to the left of this living room. So we didn't have a dining room by any stretch, right? So that space to eat in the kitchen was also kind of our dining room. And so when we'd have our big birthday parties, most people would be eating outside in the living room. The kids would be inside on the kitchen table. Um, It was quite tight when we'd have gatherings. That's for sure. It was cozy. If you went upstairs to the bedrooms, there's one for Hueda and her brother and one for her parents. When you're a kid, everything seems so big. I I I feel like my parents' bedroom was like it fit a queen-size bed, two end tables, and a, what do you call those, like a vanity type of couple of, with a couple of mirrors. And I feel, I remember everything being kind of close together, like not a whole lot of room to walk between all of those things. And so Huayda's parents did all sorts of things to make this close together, tiny, institutional looking place feel more like a home. Like, so there was a lot of pictures of like Mecca, <laughs> like Egyptian statuettes and little, you know, pictures of postcards and things like that of Egypt. And so there was like always these um, kind of hearkenings back to where my parents came from and, you know, like pictures of pyramids or Sphinx or things like that. Anyway, so it always felt like there was this, you know, my parents sort of trying to recreate some of the cultural pieces from their background within the home. I remember our house always smelled of home homemade food. Like my mom would bake pita bread a lot. And so one of my earliest memories is my mom making all these pita breads and putting it out on a huge table with like um, sheets on it and she would let them rise. And, and then, you know, she would let us have the first ones and they would be all smoky and, and warm and delicious. So yeah, like lovely memories of being in our home, like nothing bad about that. But in hindsight, the actual complex was, Yeah, it left something to be desired, for sure. On top of the visuals and smells she remembers, there are also sounds, Huayda recalls, things that she associate with the complex that made it distinctive. I remember we could hear reggae music a lot. (laughs) Yeah, 
yeah, because it was a very multicultural. So our neighbors immediately to the right were Spanish. They were from Spain. And then I think immediately to our left were Jamaican. And then throughout the complex, there was like some white kids, some brown kids, a lot of black kids. Could hear a lot of kids like yelling and talking. And then occasionally we'd see kids walk across the corrugated fence. <laughs> and my parents would never let us do that. There wasn't really a proper place for the other kids to meet and play. For example, the backyards of the units weren't really backyards in the traditional sense of the word. So it was our own, like it was fenced for our unit. It was patio stones, concrete patio stones. It was probably, I want to say, oh gosh, 10 feet, no, maybe 15 feet by 8 feet. It was like, like the length of our living room. And yeah, and yeah, we would just have like these little tricycles out there and we'd ride them around. There was no like gate or door that, that would have been nice. I think like that I think would have made it feel more community oriented, like to have that um, backyard open out onto say a courtyard or something like that. Yeah, that would have been lovely. The nearest place for kids to meet and play instead was the local school playground which my parents didn't feel comfortable, like, us going there. I don't know if they knew things we didn't, like maybe there was some drug activity or something happening. Or On top of the lack of a common community space or a place for kids to meet and play, there were also other elements of the housing complex that made it scary and opposing for Hueda as a kid. Like I say, my first memories of the complex are the parking lot. It was so big and so gray. And so I remember getting lost in it once. My parents, I forgot something up in the apartment. And mom and dad said, okay, we'll wait for you here. And I was maybe eight. And I went up to go get it. And then I came down and I couldn't find my way back to them. And my mom got so worried. And like, imagine getting lost in your own complex and your parents being that worried. Because it was, it felt so like, yeah, not pleasant. While the complex could feel scary, it was mostly a safe place. Though there's one memory Hueda has of this garage area, which still haunts her a little. I was about five because I was in kindergarten. And I remember walking there and then these these guys had their, like this dog out. It was like a German shepherd, right? And he, And they didn't have him on leash. And he started chasing us, me and my brother. So I would have been five and he's nine. I remember just being petrified, right? As a kid, like you think they're going to nip at your heels and eat you, right? So till now I have a bit of a fear of dogs. Like even as I say this, I'm getting a little <laughs> nervous. And uh, and this Rastafarian gentleman jumps up from his grand-oriented yard and he he starts yelling at the dog to get away from those kids. And to this day, I have such an affinity for Rastafarian. <laughs> because I feel like oh my gosh he saved our lives and when I recount it to my brother because he's four years older he's like I don't remember it as dramatically but yeah like it was scary because like those guys were just laughing like they unleashed their dog on purpose it wasn't just the design elements and physical feel of this affordable housing complex who way to wishes was different but everything surrounding it too I always think like, yeah, your home is one thing, but that home is within this broader community. And so how do we make sure that community has what it needs in terms of its amenities and transit options and green space and schools? And like, like I just think we have to think just that step further for who is, what else do you need besides just that place to sleep and 
eat your suppers and, you know, like what else do you need in the community to support you? Besides the complex being near to the school she and her siblings went to, Hoyer remembers there really wasn't anything else nearby that was easily accessible for her and her family. The proximity to the school was good, but the proximity to everything else was bad. Like it just, like I remember there being the closest thing that we could walk to is this like um, corner store and it was just like candy and like unhealthy food. And then getting to healthy food was like we had to drive or or things like that. Toronto is pretty good for its corner stores, but that one was more like of a, a divey corner store. <laughs> it didn't feel great. The green space at the school was fine, but then again, the the pathways to getting there, the, the pedestrian connections, the cycling connections were poor. You know, me getting there by bike was not pleasant. Like it was, again, that big parking garage and getting through it somehow, right? So just thinking about some of those things I think would be really great. In fact, there were loads of things that when she thinks about it would have been nice to have within walking distance. Well, I think it would have been great to have a library closer by. So I think they did a bookmobile program, but I don't remember it coming to that area. I'm pretty sure I would have gone if there was a bookmobile. Um, So a library would have been nice. Something where we could swim because in Toronto it gets really hot and humid in the summers. And Toronto's great. Like all their outdoor facilities, like pool facilities are free and things like that. But there wasn't one near us. So something like a rec facility. I think like if they could have improved, say, the basketball courts on the grounds, um, having just more things for kids to do nearby, I think would have been really helpful. And then, of course, that more accessible, like fresh fruits and vegetables that you didn't have to drive to, that you could walk to, would have also been really helpful. So given all these aspects of planning that could have been done differently and her own experience as a planner, I asked Hueda if there are other things she would change in terms of the complex's design, and she had a lot of thoughts. Oh, so many things. Especially now because I, like I'm a transportation engineer by trade and civil engineer by trade by training, but I work a lot in urban development, urban design now, and like we're with colleagues to do that work. And so I'm so much more alert now to what makes space joyful, pleasurable, especially like the places where you live. And so in hindsight, I wish that there was more green space, like just a place with natural materials, like grass, trees, flowers, things like that, where we could feel comfortable playing and like where there would be the ability for not just this kind of contained backyard, but also like a courtyard or place where we could gather with people. And maybe that would help us to get to know each other better. Because as it was, we kind of only got to know each other if we saw each other in the hallway. Because the fences of that court of that backyard that we have were so high too, you couldn't even see your neighbors or anything. So I remember that, like just feeling like this was kind of our closed off space and we didn't have a lot of yeah, interactions with our neighbors. Also, those design and visual elements we talked about earlier, Hueda has thoughts about those too. Yeah, I wish that that parking lot wasn't so imposing, like such a like memorable part of my experience, unfortunately, was that parking lot, how big it was and how you kind of had to go through it to get to your your home, right? Like to walk through this big, dark, concrete kind of parking lot. It was um, it was kind of an overhanging parking lot. So it was open on all sides, but it had this big, like it was underneath the complex. If you can imagine, it's not quite underground, but it was, uh, yeah, it just felt imposing and cold. I kind of just wish that parking was either underground or we didn't need as much of it or something. I don't remember us taking a lot of transit because I think my parents, like my dad took it a lot for work, but it just felt like 
really hard to get to and not very accessible, I think, for families. So that's another thing that I just wish that we had access to transit that was easy to get to, frequent. Yeah, that would have helped a lot. There were other little things too that she wishes were designed differently that would have made the place feel more homey. The corrugated backyard fence. It's very institutional, almost prison-like feel, like this corrugated fence. It wasn't nice. The linoleum flooring, yeah, that didn't feel homey. Like, would have been nice to have carpets. I think we put down some rugs, but would have been nice to have some carpet somewhere. Um, Those corridors always felt so dark. And I remember walking up those stairs, the stairs would be kind of dark and like the light would be flickering sometimes. It wasn't well-maintained, like I feel like, yeah, the lighting would sometimes be working, sometimes not. So that was a little bit worrisome. More natural light, an elevator, having finishings within the home that felt more warm, using paint and different colors of paint as opposed to the beige and the white. And I remember kind of like cinder blocks being painted. I think in the in the hallways, it was like cinder block painted white. And so even just like the cinder block look also again feels kind of institutional. Despite all this, there were things about the complex's design and Ontario housing itself that she and her family appreciated. Yeah, I kind of liked that bedroom on the main floor. I thought that like even now when I think back on it, that was really innovative to have something like two bedrooms up and one down just for accessibility because that staircase, at least from what I recall, is kind of steep. So not very accessible for, say, older people who would have mobility issues or even just generally folks who have um, limited mobility. So having that bedroom on that main floor, I think, was really great. And then having that bathroom there as well being accessible. The other thing she appreciated was that when Hueda's family welcomed her youngest sibling, Ontario Housing reached out to them. It's funny because when I talk to my mom now, she's like, yeah, wasn't that great that they contacted us when we had your younger brother to say, now that you have three kids, you need to move to a larger unit and we've put you on the waiting list. Like my mom till this day will appreciate that proactiveness by the agency to reach out be aware that we had the extra child and wanted us to move into the larger unit. So I think that was good from my mom's perspective. And I think, I think they, they, they enjoyed having this space that had two floors, maybe two. Like, I think they liked that they moved away from apartment style to more of this, like having like a living room and a kitchen on the main floor and then upstairs having bedrooms. Like it starts to feel like this single family home dream. I think that some people have. So as I spoke to her, it sounded like there were things that she did appreciate about the complex and then a lot of things she wishes that were different. So I asked her how she feels about the complex and the affordable housing unit she lived in as a whole now. Now I think back like it's one thing to put the capital dollars into building something and then even like maybe just thinking of it as like they should just be happy they have something at least by some of the materials as I remember them that were used in the building of it. But it's a whole other thing to think about the operations and how you're going to maintain that. And what is the dignity you want to offer to people who live in that space? Like, I wonder if sometimes we think people should just be happy that they have a place to live and here we've given them affordable housing. And so it's okay if it's not super clean or well-maintained or, you know, joyful to look at. And it's, and I don't know if that's, that's the right way to go, but that might've been a little bit of the thinking back then. Picking up on this point, I asked Hueda what she thought about this discourse that, well, maybe rougher housing, not so well-kept affordable housing 
that that might be the price that people have to pay to come and immigrate to Canada in the first place. Here's what she said. That's really cynical. <laughs> like I just, I just don't agree with that. That you know, because you're assuming that that person is coming here and absorbing good rather than giving good. That they're coming with a deficit as opposed to with things to offer. And so again, going back to the idea of they should just be happy. Like my parents came here with, you know, fully educated and you know very much want, wanting to give back and. It was just the circumstances that made it such that they didn't have the the funds early on to be able to, you know, afford what they would have liked to afford. So I think we need to create space and create housing for people so that they feel welcome and fully part of society when they arrive so that they have like um, a vested interest in keeping it looking that way. And yeah, just have a dignity in where they live. And I think that will make them want to give more back to society as a result right like feeling like I'm, I'm not other like I'm part of the community eventually as she got older and her family became more settled in Canada Huayda and her folks moved out to the suburbs and got their own place but this experience of living in affordable housing it still impacts the way she thinks about her board position on Islamic Family and the Halal Housing Lab. Like as I sit on the board of Islamic Family and I think about like if we want to get into the arena of housing, like I often think about let's not just put it somewhere just because we're able to get a piece of land or a certain building. Like let's make sure it's ticking off some important boxes for the people who are going to be living there that it's going to create um, a sense of pride, dignity for them and also ease in their life. So just even thinking about, like I say, that access to transit, access to daily needs, um, like grocery stores, like with healthy food in them, um, access to like schools and access to um, other just kind of daily stuff they may need, whether it's like, you know, a medical center, that kind of thing. So for me, it's about like the home itself, but then also where is it going to be? And are we just creating a situation where they're going to feel isolated in that home? And then some, I think definitely through my work, I think I've become so much more aware of like how important green spaces and proximity to green spaces to our health and well-being, and for our kids. And, and then I think just the actual look of the, the project, the, the, the building, I, Definitely was aware, like as I got older, that where I lived looked different from other people's homes, like single family homes or apartments that other people's houses that I'd visited. And I don't think that we should build things where people can like visually tell that this is like an affordable housing place compared to a market housing project. Um, I think we need to shed some of those. And I think we've, we've become better at it. Like I, I know there's been projects in Toronto, like in the Regent Park redevelopment, where some of it is market and some of it is below market. And you really can't tell the difference. Um, you just use materials for the cladding and things like that that blend in quite nicely. You can't tell the market from the no market. So I think keeping some of those things in mind is really important. Outside of Islamic family, this experience has also changed Huayda's professional work as well. She studied civil engineering at Waterloo and then worked as a transportation engineer and planner when she moved to Edmonton. 
became really interested in that intersection of how we build our city, how it impacts equity, and how it impacts just how we live as human beings in this place we call a city that's never, never quite done. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm really interested in that. I feel like my career has evolved from focusing very much on that transportation planning engineering kind of angle to thinking about how transportation mingles with land use to create these urban spaces along with open space and, and all these other pieces. It's not until you get older that you, you know, and you compare where you are now to when you were a kid and like, you think that wasn't super healthy. Like, where, you know, like there's aspects of the way that complex uh, that affordable housing complex was designed and made and operated and maintained that were, yeah, not healthy for those that lived in it. And so that I'm always thinking about that is like, how did I feel living in that situation? Definitely felt like temporary almost like this isn't where we're meant to be forever, that we're supposed to leave this place and the way it looks makes you feel like you want to leave it eventually. And as a kid, probably less so, you're just like, oh, this is where we live, right? But for my parents now in hindsight, I'm positive that for them, it was like, as soon as we have enough, we're out of here, right? We're moving to the burbs. Like that's where the, the golden life is, right? And like, do we have to make it feel like that? Do we have to make it feel like like these these affordable housing homes really should be a, a, a just a temporary solution and so as she thinks about transportation, urban planning, she thinks a lot about how we can create spaces that feel more permanent, that people can feel rooted in and proud of. And so like, it makes me think about like, why do people, like, why should we design things in our city where people feel like temporary in their state of living, right? Like they should not feel like this is just a holding pattern until I get to the next better thing. But when they're in that space of living in this affordable housing, like shouldn't that also be comfortable for them and not like looking to flee it, I suppose, because of its discomfort or sh- like, or worst case scenario, we're designing it in such a way that we don't want people to stay there too long. Like don't get too comfortable here. <laughs> that, that to me is horrible. Outside of her professional work, I asked Hueda now that she has her own family and her own place if where she chooses to live and raise her kids is impacted by her own childhood experiences. I never thought about it that way, but when we picked where where our home is now, it was definitely based on wanting to be close to transit because I never wanted them to depend on us to drive them around. I wanted them to be self-sufficient. And a key, key thing for me was to be able to walk to school. Like I, when I moved to Edmonton, this was a little bit foreign that you can kind of go to any school anywhere in the city and be driven there. And and I thought, no, that's, so maybe there's a part of there of me being like, when I grew up, we used to walk to school. <laughs> and like, I want that for my kids. So that I retained that walking to school and like living in your neighborhood, you know, being present in your neighborhood was important to me. Uh, for my husband and I, like also like we have more of an affinity of living more inner to the city as opposed to the suburbs. Like we just like that closeness of being close to where the things we need and not having to drive a lot if we don't want to. I think the thing I looked for was also green space because I didn't have a lot of that growing up. And so, yeah, being close to the school park, uh, being close to the school, like I said, but then also close to like the community league and like wanting there to be this sense of community for my kids. And now that you're asking me about it, I feel like I didn't do that consciously, but probably subconsciously. Even the physical design of the home she lives in now, when Huey thinks about it, it's also informed by the memories of the complex she used to live in. 
first thing I did was in my kids' room, we, we replaced the carpet and gave them cozy carpets in their bedrooms. <laughs> yeah, definitely wanted that. Put in some new flooring, like hardwood flooring. And yeah, like now that you're mentioning it, I really wanted like big windows. Yeah, some of those things that like I felt like we didn't have back in like when I was growing up. And then the backyard, I guess, like having a little bit of a green space to play in. But what was more important to me was actually like that access to green space, like a park nearby that they could go to themselves, like, because my parents never felt comfortable letting us go. So I wanted a park that I was comfortable that they could go by themselves. And then that access to transit was important to me. As I listen to Hawaii reflect on how her childhood experiences have informed the way she thinks about equitable, accessible spaces, I also asked her what she want other people to know about living in affordable housing, people who haven't had the same experiences as her. Definitely get my back up when I hear about people not wanting to have affordable housing going into their neighborhood. Like I've heard people say they don't want renting in their neighborhood because it brings a certain element to, you know, there goes the neighborhood kind of saying, you know. I find that really um, offensive, small-minded. And again, I think it's like this fear of the unknown that like anybody who lives in affordable housing they must have innately, they must have some deficiencies that ha- mean that they cannot afford, like they have to be subsidized by the state. And I think we need to rethink that. Like this is a place that people need to live for a variety of reasons. And we shouldn't assume things about their values, their competency, their intelligence, um, the harm they might bring to my neighborhood. And yes, there might be some underlying issues for some folks that are leading them to have to live in subsidized housing, but it is certainly not writ large. And you shouldn't assume that those people are not going to be adding value, rather that they're going to be reducing the value of your neighborhood or your home value. Like we really need to like dig in and think about what that means. This awareness around affordable housing is something that she's seen with her own eyes in discussions about city planning. I'd like to have some broader conversations because even here in Edmonton, there's been projects, affordable housing projects that, you know, have wanted to go into, say, where surplus school sites are or that kind of thing. And there have been these uncomfortable conversations with people not wanting to see those complexes go in. I remember a conversation happening, I think it was in Arminiskin, where the community group is saying, this is too close to the school. You're putting an affordable housing complex too close to the school. What does that mean? Like, I'd like to peel back those layers and understand what are they trying to say by, like, is there a danger then in affordable housing? Is the people living in those units, living in those homes, dangerous that you don't want them near a school? Like, that's what you're saying. So I'd like to peel that back better and help people understand there is no inherent danger (laughs) that comes with people who live in these affordable housing homes. It is merely a home for them. Many thanks to Hueda for sharing her experiences and reflections of growing up in affordable housing. Before we let her go, we asked her one question we asked all guests on the podcast. Can you tell me about a city you love and why you love it? So I couldn't choose between um, New York, Cairo, and Amsterdam. But I think I love them all for different reasons, but maybe some common threads. I love that they have a lot of human vibrancy. So there's just people on the street there. The urban form supports people interacting. 
in Amsterdam, I love the bicycle culture. It's, it's so pervasive. It's as pervasive as our auto culture in Edmonton. Um, I love that, uh, it's just natural to ride your bike, that it's not a thing you have to prepare for and get ready for. It's just how people get around. It's just logical. It just makes sense. Uh, with Cairo, I love the urban form in that it supports the ability to have kind of this medium density all across the whole city means that you can have this mixed use of like what you need, where you need it, right below your building. There's a grocer, there's a banker, there's a little shop where you can buy household goods. And that really comes about because you've got this denser urban form and it's not high rises necessarily. It's really great, uh, medium density kind of everywhere. And then New York, because there's just so much to do and the transit system enables you to sort of get around and do what you need to do. I would say that's probably more true on Manhattan Island, but um, that feeling of being able to not really need to own a car and neither do you really desire to, I guess, getting around by transit just sort of makes sense. And I just really love that uh, that accessibility that's available through through transit in New York. This episode concludes our Halal Housing Lab series. Throughout the series, we've heard about the many intersecting components that make up the system and the realities within which this solutions lab resides. From the lived experience of Muslims in affordable housing, to the constraints of halal compliant financing options available, the supports and characteristics of our built environment that support community resiliency, and how design decisions can reflect multi-generational Muslim values. In isolation, any of these challenges is seriously significant. But as a compilation of challenges, it becomes incredibly complex. But knowing the potential impact on members of our communities is what makes this challenge worthwhile. Thanks to Hussein and the team at Islamic Family for co-producing this episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about the Halal Housing Lab, check out our show notes or head to halalhousinglab.ca. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.